From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Good evening. This is Don Jeffries. I'm your guest host tonight, filling in for the great Richard Serrett, who will be back next week. Glad to be with you tonight. Uh, we have a very special guest for us. Uh, Jim DiEugenio is the author of Destiny Betrayed, which is about the Garrison investigation into the assassination of President Kennedy, first published in 1992, later revised and updated in 2012. And another great book, Reclaiming, Reclaiming Parkland, which was first published in 2013. And we're going to be talking about the new version, expanded version, which is titled The JFK Assassination, which features a foreword by none other than Oliver Stone. It offers a detailed critical examination of the Warren Commission's evidence and conclusions, as long as it is also an analysis of the CIA's influence in Hollywood. He is also the co-author and editor of The Assassinations, Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. He co-edited Probe Magazine from 1993 to 2000 and was a guest commentator in the anniversary edition of Oliver Stone's JFK, re-released by Warner Brothers in 2013. He has an MA in Contemporary American History from California State University, Northridge, is also a specialist in the history and theory of cinema, and has written numerous film reviews, which can be found online. Jim, welcome to the show. Good evening, Don. It's a, the, the full title is The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. All right. Uh, it was, it was just, just been reissued. Uh, you're right. It was about, uh, three weeks ago. The publisher reissued it. All right. And, um, it's a revised and updated version, of course. All right. And most of the revisions in that book were in part three. And that's the part that, well, I didn't know. This seems to be the part that's attracting the most attention. And it's that part largely consists of my critique of Tom Hanks' influence in Hollywood and, to a lesser extent, Spielberg's. Okay? And it's really because if you take a look at its ranking on Amazon, it's like number six in films. You know, I never meant it as a film study book. <laughs> you know, that part of the book is 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 not anywhere near the majority of the book. But that seems to be what's hit home with most of the people who read it. I, I don't know. Is that the way you feel about it? Yeah. Well, I, I certainly I, I I'm fascinated by that. And as you know, I and Jim and I uh, have never talked in person, but we we know each other in a cyber sense for many years online. Uh, we've yeah. discussed things uh, certainly on the on these Kennedy assassination forums, which are all over the place. And I first became familiar with your work uh, back probably back in the late 1990s when I read this fantastic article in Probe magazine about the posthumous assassination. Of JFK, oh, okay. and uh, you know, I've talked I've talked that up quite a bit, and and you and I are one accord on that. I, I've certainly put uh, used it quite a bit in hidden history, uh, the same kind of uh, assessment of the Kennedys and the way the left looks at them. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, yeah, the new book, I, I, I fascinated. You know, obviously, I had Reclaiming Parkland. I read it uh, when it came out, and I looked for the new stuff and uh, fascinated. I want to talk a little bit about that. First of all, you and I, I think, look at this the same way, and we'll get more into the Kennedy assassination itself, but assuming that a lot of the listeners know some of the minutiae in that case, I love the way you looked at the, certainly Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, uh, the new the movie The Post, things like that. I, I call what Tom Hanks is doing, and, and to a lesser extent uh, Steven Spielberg, Mick History. 
it's fast food consumption for the masses. And, and you're a historian. I'm an amateur historian. Um, so I, I love the way you, you point out the mistakes and the, and the way they look at these issues. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, the new, new, new part as far as uh, which, what you wrote about uh, Tom Hanks and Spielberg and, and then their treatment of history. All right. The, the last part of the book, part three, is really more or less what I tried to do there was to show that something has happened in Hollywood in the last approximately, I'd say, 20 years, okay? And this is why I think it's so important uh, to understand um, just what what's going on. See, after Oliver Stone's movie, um, and I, I, I don't know, if, if you don't remember it, if you weren't old enough at that time, if you don't remember it, that movie created, to say it was a firestorm is to underestimate what it did. Okay, it really, really, you know, created a controversy before it came out. If you recall, about seven or eight months before the movie came out, it was already being attacked. Right, exactly. And so what happened is that it created uh, a kind of popular uproar, the likes of which that... I really, really don't remember. You have to go back to Bonnie and Clyde for any American film that created, and I don't even think Bonnie and Clyde created that kind of reaction, okay? But you'd have to go back that far to find another film that created a, a kind of mini popular uprising the way that that, that Oliver Stone's movie did. Now, I'm, I'm not going to go into all the reasons why I think that happened. That would take another show, okay? Right. But clearly, the CIA was kind of blindsided by this, all right? And since a lot of the reaction to the film centered on secrecy in government and suspicion about executive intelligence agencies. Um, what happened was that the CIA sent a guy named Chase Brandon, okay, to set up an office in Hollywood. Now, what was, C- he, what was Chase Brand? What was Chase Brandon's uh, title or whatever with the CIA? What was his position there? Well, prior to becoming the liaison officer with the entertainment industry. He was in the clandestine service for over 20 years prior to doing that. And that, of course, means that he was in covert operations. Now, that could mean any number of things, but obviously part of covert operations is is propaganda. Okay? You know, E. Howard Hunt was an expert propagandist. So was David Phillips. It goes hand in hand with covert operations. So they sent Brandon out here. And... To make a long story short, and I detail this in the book, okay, and I go into depth and length about it, he, whatever you think about whether or not the CIA should be involved in this stuff, from their point of view, he was a smashing success. 
There's no doubt about it. By the end of his tenure, right. and I think he was out here for something like about 14 years, okay, you know, by the end of his tenure, he had people in the movie industry going to him. Okay, he didn't have them crack them down. <laughs> you know, they actually went to him. And not only was he influential in uh, actually reshaping certain projects, but I have it from more than one witness that Brandon actually wrote whole scenes in movies the way he wanted <laughs> them to trade. Okay? Right. Now, you know, I, I in, in the book, I go into this whole issue. And in my opinion, in my opinion, you shouldn't, that should not ha be happening. I mean, you should not have a kind of collaborator, a secret collaborator on a work of art who obviously and clearly has an agenda the way Chase Brandon did. Okay, and if you, and if you read that part of the book, I use some quotes by him as to show where he was coming from. He, from the very beginning, he said he wanted to change the image of the CIA in films. And I would have to say that I believe he accomplished it. He was so successful <laughs> that he was so successful that the guy who followed him, a guy named Paul Barry, okay, only had to keep the office up for a year and a half because he said that now the operation is more or less self-sustaining. You know, we we don't we don't really need to have a guy there anymore. Well, look you know, at look they, at the, how successful they were with with Argo, and you talk a little bit about that. I mean, that that was a, basically a, you know a, an, an homage to the CIA, and and we, you talk about that, and I wrote about it too, about how it was absolutely shameful the wall between the entertainment world and the government world when the yes. best picture was nominated was named from the White House, and again you had a leftist, a supposed leftist President Obama, supposed leftist activist Ben Affleck. So talk a little bit about that. What, what wasn't that incredible? I, yes, I tried absolutely. to make a big deal about that in the book. Okay, I said, can you imagine having the announcement for Best Picture at the Oscars coming from a giant screen above the, uh, above the stage from the White House and Michelle Obama actually going ahead and announcing the Best Picture Oscar? I said... You know, what is wrong with this picture? I mean, don't these people understand what the heck they're doing? You know, you, politics and art, you know, should not be mixed together like that. You know, I, I don't want to go overboard and, and make, you know, comp comparisons to, you know, sort of fascist you know, dictatorships. But that, to me, came kind of a little bit too close to the edge. You know, and, and to me, it doesn't matter if it's on the left or the center or what those people think is the is, you know, is is the extreme right. Okay, you know, I mean, I I just don't think something like that should happen. And then, of course, the winner that year, as you said, was Argo, which was basically a peon to the CIA about the Iranian Revolution. You know, and it kind of picked the the one part of that whole crisis, the only part that was considered successful. 
and wasn't you know, it convenient out, that that, that picture just happened the right when they decided after. to announce it from the White House? <laughs> we have some music coming up, Jim. So we're gonna we're gonna catch uh, we're gonna catch you again after this uh, brief break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Hello, we're back. Uh, we're talking to Jim DiEugenio, longtime uh, JFK assassination researcher. We're talking about uh, the Kennedy assassination, obviously, Hollywood, and the thin line between government propaganda and the entertainment uh, business. So, Jim, you want to continue with the points you were making before the break? Yes, yeah. Like, like, like I was trying to conclude, Chase Brandon's success in Hollywood in a relatively short period of time maybe like 13 years, was absolutely remarkable. You know, to the point that, uh, as I said, his successor, uh, or supposedly his successor, a guy named Paul Berry, only stayed in office about a year and a half, all right? Because as the CIA said, you know, they now had what they called a very active network of people in Hollywood helping in whatever way they can to give back, okay? Give back for what is something that I don't know what the guy means by that. But they had people now like J.J. Abrams, uh, you know, uh, even Tom Cruise, Phil Alden Robinson, okay, et cetera. They were interacting with those kinds of people now, you know, on a weekly kind of a basis, you know, and like I said, to me, I just, I just don't think that that's the right thing to do. But that's the thing they did for Zero Dark Thirty, also. You know, the the the, the film director and the writer on that film met several times with the CIA. You know, and they got a lot of advice and a lot of counseling from them on how to treat that story. You know, and and I I I have a, I have a real problem with this. Because coming from where I come from, okay, studying these assassinations of the 60s, you know, it's, it's, it's bad enough to have this kind of influence through the FBI and the CIA over newspapers and magazines, which has been plentifully documented in the past by very many people, not just me, but, you know, but many other luminaries in the field. All right, but now to spread it to the big screen, you know, I mean, it's just to me that's just too much, you know. And then when when you think when you think of these people in Hollywood who consider themselves, you know, leftists or liberals, and then you see what they're doing, you know, a really good example would be the Post, which is why I spent. In the new edition of the book, I spent about 20 pages trying to explain everything that was wrong with that film. You know, and and I I just find it shocking, you know, in retrospect. Sure, well, and look at the post, and and I'm I'm so glad you're out there doing it, because what happens is people like us are out there that that know the truth about these matters, and we know what the facts are, and we're watching a, a, a powerful medium like this. When you have people like Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg... Uh, giants of the industry 
that have such a platform that can put this kind of disinformation out there, this twisted take on, on history, Mick history as I call it. It's very dangerous. And, and tell us a little more about the Post. Obviously, we, we know Ben Bradley just from studying the Kennedy assassination. You know, this guy was supposed to be JFK's best friend or tight friend, but he, he never wanted to do any critical studies in the Kennedy assassination. He had George Lardner Jr. there for years, who was rumored to be tied to the intelligence community that wrote a lot of awful articles on it, distorted coverage of the HSCA and so forth. And then you had uh, his background where he had been apparently close to Richard Helms of the CIA. Hardly uh, someone who would, who would, uh, was a bastion of the free press. Um, uh, so tell us a little about the Post and how that's, that's the distorted view of uh, what was really going on with the Pentagon Papers and so forth. All right. And that, for that part of the book, all right, um, I did a lot of research. Okay, I did. I, and I interviewed, I interviewed a couple of lawyers for the Times in that case who were actually in court. You know, fighting uh, what Nixon wanted to do to bottle up uh, the Pentagon Papers, right? And the the in-house counsel for the New York Times back during the Pentagon Papers days um, was a guy named James Goodale, who's still alive, all right? And I interviewed him on more than one occasion. He told me, he goes, Jim, if you think that the movie is bad now, you should have seen the first draft of the script. He goes, when I heard this was going on, I called Spielberg's office and I said, I would like to read the script that you're going to shoot for this movie. All right. And so, and he, so he sent it to me. He goes, Jim, in the first draft of the script, Ellsberg was barely even in the picture. He was in the movie for one scene. One scene. It's when Ben Bajdikian goes up to Cambridge. Uh, Ellsberg is hiding out in this hotel room with a copy of the Pentagon Papers on the bed. Because that's the only scene that he was in. And so when I read that, I said, wait a second. <laughs> what are you guys doing? I mean, if there's no Daniel Ellsberg, you don't have a movie. And you're only well, going to put them in there for one scene? And well, all they, they, they basically do is hand off the Pentagon Papers to this reporter? Yeah. Well, has, has Daniel Ellsberg, has he, has, do we know what his reaction in the film was? He couldn't have been too pleased. Well, Daniel, I think, was just happy to get the picture made, okay, okay. And, to, and to get some notoriety for the Pentagon Papers. Uh, when, when I, like, communicated with him by email... Okay, he didn't protest too much about it. He had a book coming out, The Doomsday Machine, okay, about his work as a atomic bomb, uh, you know, statistician and analyst. All right. So, you know, I, I, you know, I, 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 I didn't think that he was going to really, and, and he really didn't. The guy who did was James Goodale. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, one of the things we talked about, you know, and I think this is a very apt comparison. You know, making a movie about the Pentagon Papers through the Washington Post would be like making a movie about Watergate through the New York Times. You know, mm-hmm. it just doesn't yeah. make any sense. You know, yeah. the, look, let's let's put it another way: the whole saga of the Pentagon Papers lasted for three years. 
this was from the night that Ellsberg uh, took the Pentagon Papers out of the Rand Corporation on the West Coast where he was working until the conclusion of his trial with Anthony Russo, in which him and Anthony Russo were on trial for a total of about 145 years in prison if they were convicted. Okay? That lasted three years. All right? The main characters in that drama were Ellsberg, uh, Russo, Neil Sheehan at the New York Times, and Richard Nixon, who was Nixon and John Mitchell, his attorney general, who were determined uh, to put Ellsberg and Russo away. In that entire three-year drama, the Washington Post figures for two weeks. Two weeks! That's it. Okay? Yeah. And, 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 and we're supposed to make a movie about this incredible story, and, you're, and yeah. you extract two weeks from it, you know, and you expect yeah. to do it. I mean, it, it's just kind of my... And then, of course, it's not bad enough that they essentially extracted a two-week passage out of a three-year epic story. But then what they did with that two weeks, I mean, please, to try and portray Catherine Graham as some kind of heroine oh, in the Vietnam yeah. War. I mean, I mean, this is how bad it got. This is how bad it got. <laughs> I, I literally could not believe some of the things that Meryl Streep was saying. That's not to detract from Meryl Streep, of course. She's a good actress. Okay, but her character is, I, I couldn't believe it. I had to go back and see the movie again and take a whole yeah. other set of notes because I was just flabbergasted. Well, my hat's right. off for you to be to, to be for be able to watch that. Is just like you know to be able to wade through reclaiming uh, history. I, I I I couldn't do it. So you're a better man than me on that. But but as far as <laughs> as, as far as far as though, I'm glad that, that we have someone out there like you willing to do that because that that takes a lot of time to do it and it takes now, well, a lot of it takes a strong also, the only to watch theater the around in my <laughs> area where it was playing was one of these high class you know uh, exalted theaters. So I had to pay fourteen seventy five both times to see the picture. You know, so you're talking almost 30 bucks to see this. Well, actually, yeah, about 30 bucks to see the thing. All right, twice. So there's this one scene in the film, which I just, yeah, I was, I just, I don't remember if my mouth flew open, but that's the kind of reaction I hear, I, I remember. Okay, it's when she goes over to Bob McNamara's house. All right, and she is somehow shocked and surprised that McNamara uh, could have taken part in Johnson's Vietnam policy, you know, and hidden some of the the worst elements. Because that's essentially what the Pentagon Papers is about. It's, it's, it's hardest on Johnson, you know, because of all the deceptions he used in order to go ahead and escalate the Vietnam War. All right? Now, this to me is like the famous scene, which I think all film lovers understand, in the in the in the movie Casablanca, you know, where where Claude Rain says, "I'm shocked, I'm shocked that there's gambling at Rick's," okay, which of course he knew about was always happening for a long period of time, you know, and that was all just kind of a put on, just an act, 
Well, if you know anything about Johnson's relationship with Kate Grant, okay, she was called into the White House in 1964, and a couple of her editorial managers came in with her and Johnson essentially explained to her that he planned on escalating the war after the election so she knew before it started what was going to happen now also if you remember okay and I put this in the book you know during that election Johnson lied his head off about yeah. Vietnam. One of his big lines was, his, you, know, you know, I'm not going to send American boys across the Pacific to do what Asian boys should be doing. Shades you know, of uh, Wilson and FDR, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, of course, what he was planning to do. Okay, yeah. and then, then his other line was, we seek no wider war. Which is another lie. That's a, and so, in other words, she knew about this in 1964. The Washington Post supported the expansion of the war, you know, all through every single escalation that Johnson made. The, the New York Times actually did ask a few questions about, you know, the number of civilians that were dying because of the bombing campaign. The Post almost never did that. And in fact, Johnson once said, he once said in private, something like, you know, Kate Graham is worth two divisions to me in, in Indochina. <laughs> All right? So to, for Spielberg and Hanks to, make, to, to go ahead and film that scene, you know, that's an abomination of history. And the other thing they did is they tried to make McNamara into a kind of a bad guy. Yeah. Look, as far as the Pentagon Papers went, McNamara did not try and suppress those at all. Okay, he, in, in 1967, he's the one who commissioned the study. And he's the one who shepherded it through. And he's the one who made it top secret for the simple reason that he did not want Johnson to know about it because he knew Johnson would terminate it if he found out about it. Leslie Galb, who was the editor of the project, said, I never had any problem getting any documents. All I had to do was say McNamara's name, and by magic, you know, they would appear on my desk. You know, and he said, McNamara took me to his house, and he had a lot of this stuff in his closet. He had taken it out of the Defense Department, all right, and because he thought a lot of it would disappear if he left it there. And he put it in his home, and he gave it to me. You know, he wanted everything on the table for that yeah. study. And the, the and the re and now, see, and and the thing is, this is what, and this is why that movie, I believe, is so pernicious. It makes false heroes out of Bradley. And Graham, all right, Absolutely. and it kind of turns McNamara into a heavy. When in fact, the truth is, if you know anything about the real history of the Vietnam War, by 1967, 
I believe, and a lot of other people believe, that McNamara was going through some kind of an emotional breakdown. Johnson insisted on keeping the bombing up. He spurned almost every hope of any kind of peace talks, even though Bobby Kennedy was trying to push him into doing that at that time. All right? Okay, and a lot of reports are that McNamara would sometime just go into his office, sit at his desk, and start crying. You know? And I believe, I believe, and I can back this up with some evidence, I believe he did that. He was having that breakdown because he knew that Johnson had completely turned around what Kennedy's plan was. Okay, Jim, i got to yeah. stop. We're, we're, we're up against another break. We're going to continue this discussion with Jim Eugenie on the other side. We'll be right back. Don't be afraid. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Jim Eugenio. Uh, we're talking all things JFK assassination. Uh, we've been having a good discussion here about uh, Hollywood and how... Um, CIA and other government intervention has really uh, transformed, uh, I believe, the way we look at the, a lot of these subjects. Uh, certainly, going back to Oliver Stone in 1991, JFK, and I, I have a connection to that film as well. I, I teach a course out here in the, uh, my county's adult education. Believe it or not, they let me teach a course on, on the film on the film JFK. And uh, so I, I really enjoy doing that. I know the film real well. Uh, my respect grows for it. Uh, you know, with every every passing time I watch it, but since 1991, there's been such a sea change there. We would have thought that with the way, as you mentioned, it had such a revolutionary impact. Dan Rather editorialized against it on the CBS Evening News, I think, three times. Unprecedented stuff. Oliver Stone really, really uh, caused some incredible ripples out there in Hollywood, but we don't see anyone picking up the mantle other than him. Uh, when you talk about people like Hanks and Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, people like that, they're all on the other side. They want to sell this this disinformation. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the animosity towards Kennedy itself, because I, I think you and I are, are, are a couple of really only few people out there that see this kind of um, – I, criticism of the Kennedys is being irrational to the point, and uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about the new movie Chappaquiddick. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I, I think that it's kind of in line with that. But I'm just astounded at the way the left, and we certainly can talk about Noam Chomsky, one of your favorites, and and the way he, uh, <laughs> the way he, I mean, and that's an example I think of, of, the, of the kind of left, the dichotomy between people like Chomsky on the left, who's seen as an anti-war darling, and most people don't know. I pointed out several times that his first few books were, were written with grants from the United States military. Now, I don't know many other experts, any, any so-called anti-war experts who's criticizing our military policy, who's being funded by it. But Chomsky, you want to talk a little bit about him and maybe compare him? To, it's the same kind of thing, though. They're, they're really uh, distorting the record of Kennedy as far as uh, his, his record, going back to the Algerian speech that you talk about quite a bit, and, and certainly on the way he conducted his presidency and was the last president really to opt for peace over and over again, uh, and the way these leftists continue to attack him and try to paint him as a cold warrior and uh, basically say because his life really wasn't too significant he wasn't that great of a guy so yeah, he got killed but who really cares you want to talk a little bit about that uh, uh, okay um, a long time uh, let's see about five years ago I decided that I was going to go ahead and exp- 
explore this in, entire issue. All right, that is, what really was Kennedy's foreign policy? You know, and, you know, because, look, if you read the JFK assassination books, right, then all you hear about, time after time after time, you would think that Kennedy spent his entire presidency on Vietnam and Cuba. That's it. You know, so, you know, well, did he really spend a thousand days on Vietnam and Cuba? You know, I, I, so I then took a look and said, you know something, there's another problem with this. Because although everybody mentions his Cuba policy and his Vietnam policy, nobody explains why, number one, Kennedy did not send in the Navy to bail out the Bay of Pigs when, in fact, there were ships right off the coast of Florida that he could have called upon to do that with. All right. Uh, and then Admiral Arleigh Burke, you know, and the CIA and Nixon were urging him to do that. All right. Secondly, why did he not send combat troops into Vietnam in November of 1961 when everybody was urging him to do so? And number three, why did he not bomb the missile silos during the missile crisis? Why? Why did he not do all three of those things? You know, because we know that Nixon urged him during the Bay of Pigs, uh, declare a beachhead and invade the island. All right. We know what Johnson would have done with the troops in Vietnam because he, he wanted to do it from uh, 1961. So he would have gone along with those. Um, and Eisenhower backed up Johnson. And we know with the missile crisis that everybody, by the end of the, the second week, you know, everybody except Bobby Kennedy, you know, was urging him to go ahead and not just bomb, but and some of them wanted to invade the island. And we know today what would have happened because we know today that the Cubans had 13 tactical atomic warheads there. So any invasion would have been incinerated, you know, by those atomic weapons. And Kennedy would have had no choice except to retaliate, you know. So why didn't he do those things? And so I said, there must be something we're missing here. Okay, some part of the puzzle, you know, is not prevalent. It's not written about. So I decided to go outside the Kennedy assassination book field. All right, and so and I started digging through other things, and I found a few sources that really helped me in this regard. And I found out that what happened was that Kennedy had a kind of transformative experience in 1951. All right. And he met with a diplomat in the State Department in Saigon named Edmund Gullion. And he was there in Saigon because the next year he had planned on running for the Senate. And he wanted to be a little bit more well-informed about foreign affairs. Okay? And so he met Gullion at this rooftop restaurant in Saigon. And he asked him, he goes, you know, is France going to win this war? And Gullion was very straightforward and said, there's no way in Hades 
that France is going to win the war. You know, and so Kennedy goes, well, how come? And he goes, Ho Chi Minh has the Viet Minh so fired up about this being their country that they would rather die than go back under the yoke of colonialism. France will never be able to win a war of attrition. They'll never be able to win a guerrilla war where you have to kill more of the enemy than the enemy kills of you. And the reason they won't win is because the French home front will never support it. Now, in a nutshell, I don't have to tell you that that's exactly what happened to the United States. Okay? All right, the American uh, home front would not support this war of attrition that Johnson and Westmoreland decided to execute in Vietnam. That meeting at which Bobby Kennedy was in attendance, he said that had a deep impact on Kennedy's thinking. All right, and from that moment on, he began to make speeches, write letters to his constituents, make radio addresses, and he was like a lonely voice in the wilderness. Jim, I hate to interrupt you again. We're, we're, we're hearing the music again. There's so much good information. We're going we're to pick up uh, right up to these uh, few commercial messages. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we're back. We are talking to Jim DiEugenio. Uh, Jim, go on to go ahead and uh, pick up where you left off. Finish your thoughts. So that that meeting with Gullion transformed his whole view of for American foreign policy in the third world. He decided that we had to be for something rather than just be anti-communist. Okay, that was not going to work. All right, because in his view, nationalism was the real motivation for these countries coming out of what is commonly called the second age of colonialism. And those countries were basically in Africa and in Asia. All right. And so he did this for six years. He was essentially the only guy in Washington talking about this issue. And it was too far, it was too far out for either the Democrats or the Republicans. And he specifically criticized both the Democrats and Republicans are failing to understand this issue. And this all culminated in what I consider Kennedy's greatest speech, which is his famous June 1957 speech on the Senate floor, in which he specifically attacked Nixon, the Dulles brothers, and Eisenhower for helping the French stay in Algeria. And he specifically said that didn't we not learn from three years ago when the French fell at Dien Ben Phu? Didn't he not learn that we should not tie ourselves to the desperate effort of a French imperial empire to hang on to its far-flung possessions? Would we not be better served if we went ahead and convinced them to go to the negotiating table? and find a graceful way out of this painful situation. The object in those negotiations should be, number one, to save the French nation, and number two, to free Africa. 
Now, can you imagine a guy talking like that on the floor Absolutely. of the Senate in 1957? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, revolutionary. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you that you point this stuff out because no one else is doing that. And right. uh, Kennedy was really fighting decades and decades. I don't know where you go back to Grover Cleveland or something. It was the last really <laughs> anti-colonial. I mean, starting with Teddy Roosevelt. You know, we, we had this imperialistic... Uh, Jingoistic kind of a colonialist attitude towards the rest of the world, and Kennedy was fighting that. And if, if we watched, I think you've talked a little bit of that uh, the film uh, Virtual JFK, which shows yeah. exactly what what happens when Kennedy Kennedy over and over rejected the call for war. And we've seen since that time not a single president. When there's rumbling somewhere, I mean, Donald Trump talked about we need to stop all these senseless wars. That's why a lot of people were attracted to him. But as soon as he's as soon as he ordered and presented with you know ridiculous evidence, doesn't matter how absurd it is, he he commits the troops and and all the presidents have since Kennedy and I, I think you know we talk a little bit about that how he was the last really voice for peace we had in the White House. Yeah, well that's that's I think that's substantially true because uh, if you take a look at his policies, Kennedy's policies um, that he tried to enact in those three years. Many of them were altered, and a lot of them were simply reversed by the combination of Johnson and then Nixon and Kissinger. You know, and I could name a few places. I mean, you know, Indonesia, for example, Congo is another example. Dominican Republic, you know, is, is, is another example. You know, and, and of course, you know, the one that ended up being an utter and complete disaster was was in Indochina, you know. But Indonesia is one that doesn't get talked about very much, and I think that's very important because that culminated in uh, in 1965, the overthrow of Sukarno, in what many people consider what is probably uh, the CIA's bloodiest coup with help from the British, all right, uh, in history, in which, uh, to this day, nobody knows how many people died. But it was at least 500,000 people perished, you know, in the overthrow of Sukarno and the installation of Suharto. And Kennedy stood by Sukarno to the bitter end. You know, he was like the only guy in Washington standing by him. You know, and in fact... In Greg Polgrain's book, The Incubus of Intervention, Kennedy was actually arranging deals for Sukarno because he did not think that the Indonesian government was getting enough out of these, uh, tra- you know, like these mining and petroleum drilling projects. You know, he wanted the Indonesian government to get 60% to a 40% for the company. And of course, if you don't know anything about this, Indonesia was one of the richest areas for natural resources in the entire world. So you're talking a lot of money, all right? Well, Kennedy was arranging deals for Sukarno, and he was arranging uh, to visit him during the election for 1964, and Sukarno was actually building him a mansion. He looked so much forward to having Kennedy there 
in 64. Of course, then, when, when he heard the news, Sicarno started weeping and said, why did they kill my friend John Kennedy? <laughs> well, every, everything the, the you're writing, just, every, everything the writing was on the wall. You know? Yeah, and, and everything everything you're describing here. I mean, you're you're going into all these details about what was going on, uh, not just in Vietnam but around the world. We see exactly how many things changed. Because the whole thrust of American foreign policy, not just Vietnam, right. that was obviously the biggest thing, changed with Kennedy's death, and that's why it's it's so distressing to have people like Noam Chomsky with the voice he has out there trying to minimize. Or distort the record of JFK's foreign policies to paint him as just another Cold Warrior as being no different than LBJ, and obviously you and I and hopefully others understand that there was a vast difference between them. And we see not only the National Security Action Memorandum 263 becoming 273, and what a difference that was, but I think we see the most obvious changes that happened because of the assassination is what happened to American foreign policy afterwards. You want to talk a little about that? Well, what happened was that by approximately the late 70s, rather the mid-70s, Nixon and Kissinger had finished up what Johnson had started, which is pretty much the reversal of things like the Alliance for Progress in Latin America. Uh, he had, Nixon and Kissinger went beyond even Johnson uh, in their cross-border rates. In the Cambodian Laos, which resulted in the overthrow of Sihanouk, and the Cambodian genocide, which took the lives of about two million people. Then, when Nixon was removed from office, Jerry Ford became president. And he had been, of course, on the Warren Commission, falsified the facts of Kennedy's death, you know. And what happened there was something really that not enough people understand. He brought into power for the first time two guys named Rumsfeld and Cheney. All right? And what he did is those guys thought, now I'm, I'm really going to say this with a straight face because it's true. Those guys thought that Nixon, Kissinger, and Haig were too moderate <laughs> because yeah. they wanted to reignite Kennedy's detente with Moscow. And so they brought in these private citizens led by Paul Nitsa, who has been an eternal hawk. And they created the committee called the Committee on the Present Danger. Aided by George H.W. Bush at the CIA, they were allowed to enter into the CIA offices and change the estimates on Soviet conventional strength and atomic strength. And this was the beginning of what's popularly termed today the neoconservative movement and the rise of people like Richard Pearl and Gene Kirkpatrick. And this was the ultimate burial of JFK's foreign policy. I think it's epitomic that it happened under Jerry Ford because you had Jerry Ford bearing the truth about Kennedy's death, and now you had Jerry Ford instrumental with help from George H.W. Bush at burying and essentially exterminating uh, his foreign policy. And today, if you ask me, the neocons dominate 
are not just in the Republican Absolutely. Party. They dominate the media. They dominate sure. a good part of the Democratic Party. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Hillary Clinton, absolutely. to me, was pretty much a neocon. You know? Well, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say, in my opinion, I, th- I think we look at the, the Reagan years as when the, the conservative movement changed into this neocon thing. Before, the conservatives yes. were basically anti-communist and um, yes. less government. They became neocon, total Zionist, and uh, kind of Ayn Rand worshippers of greed. Uh, and Clinton in the 90s went from... Uh, uh, concern, being, Democrats being concerned with civil liberties and uh, protecting the rights of people to hate speech laws and trying to lock people up for, for saying something. And as you said, no disagreements on foreign policies. They're just this neocon Hillary Clinton basically was calling Donald Trump a wimp during the campaign because, you know, for wanting to get along with Russia. And I, we, we have no choice. Well, I, I don't know. Do you know this? Policy. Do you know this? Do you know the Clintons vacation in the Bahamas? At a giant mansion with Henry Kissinger? Did you know that? <laughs> well, it doesn't surprise me. And he, he gets yeah, around. Yeah, he advises when everyone. When I heard that, when I heard that, I just about fell off my chair. What is any Democratic <laughs> president doing, even talking to Henry Kissinger? Henry Kissinger is a war criminal. I mean, this incredible. guy is the heavyweight of genocide. In the 20th century. Jim DiEugenio, longtime JFK researcher who, uh, who knows this stuff like nobody else today.